It's good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here. I've got five quick things to run through real quickly as we get started before we jump into the Sermon on the Mount. We're starting a new series. I'm pulling up some notes here. It helps me when I want to make sure that I say something clearly and precisely to have it written out. And some of this is from the elders, not just from me, but me, Keith, Adam, your elders. And I wanted to make sure that I said what we had all talked about. So there that is. Um, Several of these are just good news, praises, things that we can thank God for that we've been praying about, and then um, a few other pieces of information for you as well. So five things. Number one, I've talked to you several times about the Browns, Josh and Selena, who are um, being trained right now as international missionaries and heading to Europe in a couple of months. We prayed for them last week, and I just wanted you to know after the service, Josh had texted me, and he was like, worship was awesome this morning. So thankful. Thanks so much. And so if you were here last week, he had been selected to start teaching in their kind of home church group during this training, and they had gone through Colossians 1, and so they're in Colossians 2 today, and he and I got to text through that together yesterday. And so things have gotten off to a really good start for them, and they're really thankful and excited, and I just hope that you'll keep praying for them. Um, and, and just I will keep you updated on the ways God is using them, uh, whether that's here in the States right now or as they travel overseas to keep making disciples and building the church. But I just wanted to let you know that piece of good news. Number two, second praise. Um, this has been a long process, and some of you have been praying with us through this for a long time, but I wanted you to know that we got the final check from the insurance company um, with the roof damage from the storm three years ago. And it was uh, significantly more than what they've been offering for the past three years. And so we're really thankful that that's been resolved in that way. But then, number three, (laughs) because of all the fees and expenses of the three-year process, um, we did get less than what the umpire had awarded us just because things had to be paid out. And, uh, And so we're working through that. But there is another praise tucked into that is that there's a roofing company that we've been working with that's come up with a plan to replace certain sections of this roof that need to be replaced, repair sections that just need to be repaired. And it's looking like there's a good chance that we're going to be able to do all that and get all that work done uh, for less than what we've received. And it will leave us some funds to start working on the inside again. If you've seen over there, there's a lot of water damage on the inside and start to repair them. So that leads to number four. As we try to decide how we're going to move forward with those units, as we get them fixed, one factor uh, that we're trying to take into consideration is our monthly giving as it compares to our monthly budget here. And this year, our monthly giving's been really unpredictable if you chart it from month to month. Uh, We've had three months where the monthly giving has been significantly over our monthly need, and then we've had four months where the monthly giving has been significantly under our monthly need, average all that out, and overall for the year, we're running about $4,500 a month under budget. Like giving is $4,500 less than what we've budgeted as our need. Um, and then in January, we will have our, our facilities payment, our loan will go up by about $4,000. So we're trying to also take that into account that that's coming up in about five months. So with all that said, number five, we're trying to decide the best approach for this section up here, and we just want to keep you in the loop and let you know where we are, what the information is. Um, you know, possibly we can rent out some of those units when they're repaired, and that may generate a little bit of income that lowers the facility cost for us. Uh, we're also looking at the option: are, is there a section of those units that it might be better for the church if we sold those and lowered our overall facilities expense? Um, in all of that. We want to ask this question. This is our big question, and it's not just about facilities. What we're asking is, what does God want us to use to best make disciples? That's what matters. And we know that the church is not the building, and it's not the facilities. Those can be tools that we use. But the main thing for us making disciples is you and me. It's the people. The people are the church, and we want to make sure that we make decisions when it comes to finances and budget and facilities that reflect that we really believe that truth, that we're not dependent on this, everything doesn't hinge on this, but rather on God living in us and his work in us and through us. And so with all that, we just we want to be as open, transparent. We want you to have the information. We want you to pray with us. And if you'll just keep praying that we'll have wisdom, that God will make it clear how he wants us to handle these decisions as a church and move forward, 
And when it comes to giving, finances, money, um, I know I speak for all the elders when I say that is never the main emphasis for us. And as we get into the Sermon on the Mount today, you'll see that it's not the main emphasis for Jesus. And that's why we don't want it to be the main emphasis for us. But any time that he talks about money, and he does, it's always because that's closely connected to our hearts. That usually where our hearts are, what we value the most, we'll invest in whether it's the things of this world or the things of heaven. And so we don't want to ignore it. We don't want to pretend it's not there. It's not like this taboo subject that we can't talk about. But we never want to talk in a way where that's the primary emphasis. We're not trying to put any pressure or guilt on anybody. Uh, But we are saying that we believe that following Jesus and investing in his church and making disciples is is worthwhile, that it's eternally significant and that it's one of the best things that we could ever do to say, hey, these temporary worldly things that don't matter, they're not going to last. When we invest those in something that's going to last forever and matter forever and change people's lives forever, that's a great decision. And so, you know, we're thankful for the way God continues to provide. Um, it's been surprising the past two years. It's been a, a lesson in trusting God one day at a time, one step at a time, just faith where we we don't see what's coming next and so far every time around the corner he just keeps opening the next door and opening the next door and so we keep moving forward and we're going to keep doing that whether that looks like what we expect or not but that's where we are right now and there's a lot to be thankful for and to thank God and praise God for today so I wanted to make sure that we're doing that um, during this time of prayer if you've got more questions like if I didn't say that clearly enough even though I had all the stuff typed out um, Adam raise your hand and Keith They'll answer your questions after the service, okay? <laughs> I will too if I can. Uh, if you want more details, we're happy to give them to you, but it's also not the main thing we're talking about right now during this time. So moving on to the main thing. If you want to turn to Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7 in your Bibles, on your devices, it's going to be on the screen as well. We are going to start into the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's sort of the, the largest consecutive piece of teaching from Jesus that we have recorded in the New Testament. And I've wrestled a lot with how to approach it, and here's where I've settled for now. I'd like for us to do two weeks here where we're orienting ourselves to the sermon. So this this week, I'm going to read the whole thing, all three chapters. Jesus taught this all at once, the best that we can tell from the way that Matthew's recorded it. So I think it's good for us to hear it all together Usually, when I ask, what does this teach about God, you all share some truths. I don't think this week we've got time for that, if I'm going to do a better job, like I've been saying. especially. And listen, I know that you all can get up and go and use the bathroom, get something to drink if you need to, and you're adults. And, and also, just so you know, Teresa can teach all day. Like It's not an issue with the kids. She's all, she, she has more energy than all of us put together. I'm mainly thinking about our preschool workers. <laughs> I do them a disservice when I keep them in there like, for an extended period of time. And we are really thankful for our preschool workers. And so I don't want to discourage them and overwhelm them. So what we're going to do today, we're going to overview of the Sermon on the Mount. And as you see certain things, what's this teach about God, go ahead and make notes. Because this week we're going to do overview. Next week I'm going to do something that I hope sets the context in the book of Matthew. So two weeks to get familiar with it. Then we're going to go back piece by piece. And right now I'm thinking six weeks to get through those three chapters. Basically two weeks a chapter. So as we go back piece by piece, the things that you're seeing right now, just go ahead and make notes and and we'll talk about those truths about God then, if that makes sense. And it'll give you a couple weeks to build some up. So this is just like part one, part two, part three. Um, It's not all going to be done this morning, and that's okay. So in just a minute, I am going to pray for us, and I'm going to ask you to be praying with me um, that God will teach us during this time, that he would be the one teaching by his spirit, and that we would see him and know him, and, and that he would do a spiritual work to help us understand the truths that he's revealing to us about himself, because he's the only one who can do that. And then as I read this section of Matthew, you be listening for what does this teach us about God? And if these things are true about God, what's he saying to us, both as followers of Jesus individually, but also as his church? What are the things he's saying to us, to our hearts, to our lives about following him because of who he is? So that's where we're headed. Let's pray together right now and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this time right now. 
please teach us by your spirit from your word as only you can. Open up the truth of your word to us and open us up to the truth of your word. We do thank you, Father, for uh, each of the areas of answered prayer that I mentioned a minute ago. Thank you for the way that you are blessing Josh and Selena and preparing them and these other 108 missionaries that you have called out and that you are sending all over the world to make disciples and make Jesus known. We ask that you would continue to speak to them and teach them from your word today and this week and the next several weeks of training and that you will use them to build your church uh, for the sake of your name. We thank you for the ways that you are leading us as a church. Thank you for resolving this insurance issue. Thank you that we don't have to spend time and energy and thought on that anymore, but that we can spend time and energy and thought on pursuing you and making you known and who you want us to be as your church and how you want us to make disciples. And for every detail that involves these facilities, um, our giving, our finances, I pray, Father, that it would simply be about Jesus and his gospel and his church and us following him and anything that's not about that that we just won't even care about it. But when it connects to him and it's how you would have us follow him and how you want to use us, then, Father, I pray that we will give our hearts to that and that you will lead us and work in us to keep making us that type of church. Thank you again for this time together. Please speak and teach right now as only you can. We need you to do it. We are dependent on you to do it, and we trust you to do it. So we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I want us, actually, I know I said Matthew 5 through 7. That's what we're going to focus on. That's where the Sermon on the Mount is. But I want you to back up with me to Matthew 4, verse 18, just to see what leads us into the Sermon on the Mount. So if, if you were reading through Matthew's whole gospel, the way that he wrote it, chapters 1 through 4, we get to this section right here in 4, and watch what happens right here immediately before he records the Sermon on the Mount. It says, starting in verse 18, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the regions across the Jordan followed him. Next verse starts chapter 5. And I just wanted you to see that this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus calls people to follow him, calls some of his first apostles and then disciples in general, the crowd. And in eight verses there at the end of chapter 4, we get, come follow me in, chapter, in verse 19 to Peter and Andrew. They followed him in verse 20. In verse 22, James and John followed him. And then again in verse 25, you've got this crowd following Jesus. And I, I just wanted you to see that immediately before we get the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew has put this emphasis on these people who are being called to follow Jesus and are starting to follow Jesus, and these crowds that are following Jesus physically and seem to be interested in following Jesus spiritually. And so then immediately from there into verse 1, like these crowds are following Jesus. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, so the crowds that are following him, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And so I just wanted you to see here contextually that one of the ways that I think it's helpful to think about the Sermon on the Mount is that this is Jesus looking at brand new followers 
and people who are interested in being followers. They're thinking about following Jesus. They've taken these first little steps, and they're listening to them, and Jesus is teaching them. And I think one way to think about his teaching is he's saying, this is what it looks like to follow me. This is what my followers look like. This is what it means to follow me. And so as we read this, we're going to get a description from Jesus of what it looks like if we are following Jesus. What does it mean to follow him? How does he describe who he is and because of who he is, who his followers will be, what they will be like, what it will mean for their life if they're going to follow him? Do you see that? And I think that helps us listen to what he says in a sense in the way that Matthew intended for us to hear it if we read straight through the gospel and don't break it up and just pull out this section by itself. So, he began to teach them. He said, now here's the sermon starting in verse 3. I'll read straight through right now the way that Matthew has written it, just the words of Jesus all the way through the end of chapter 7. So here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, 
for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? 
So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. All right. I know there is a ton there. That is the best sermon that's ever been preached in the history of the world that we have a record of. He may have preached that sermon and variations of it a lot of times over the three years of his ministry, but this is the one that Matthew recorded for us. And you'll never have better moral teaching, better ethical teaching, better religious teaching, better spiritual teaching, uh, anything deeper and more revealing about who God is than what we get from the lips of Jesus right here. And so I know there's no way we can process all that today. We're not trying to, right? The next eight weeks, we won't process all of it, but we'll chew up more than we can do today. Today, I just want to point out what I think is the main theme for the whole sermon. When Jesus is saying, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me, here's what that means. Here's what that looks like. And so I'm going to flip back and forth on the screen a lot. You you can try to track along with me up there. But I think that if we can see this and pull this out, it'll help us every week from here on. 
So the very first thing, he has these people following him. He sits down to teach them. And look at where he starts, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so immediately, he starts some sort of conversation where following me is about the kingdom of heaven. And people who follow me belong to the kingdom of heaven, or even the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. They are part of, that following him is being part of a kingdom, and it's a spiritual kingdom. A kingdom where he's, he's wanting to reorient your life to where heavenly things matter more than earthly things. That the kingdom of heaven is more important than this world and this life. And just to see that this really is the emphasis with the Beatitudes, this first section here, he starts with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you're usually your introduction, you're getting people's attention and telling them the main idea. And he walks through some Beatitudes that mention different things. But then on the last Beatitude, for his conclusion, he circles back around to the same thing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the only thing that he repeats in that section. It's the thing he starts with, the thing that he ends with. I feel like it's pretty good clues that he's saying, this is going to be part of the focus right here. Following him somehow is about the kingdom of heaven. And then as we keep working our way through the sermon, once we're clued into that, watch how often he refers to these heavenly things. In verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted on earth. When people reject you here, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. And so he's saying the reward that you get in heaven is what really matters. And if you get persecution here but reward there, you should be glad about that because this is more important. This matters more. You're not living for this world, this life, the things of this earth, the praise and acceptance of people in this world. That's not what your life is about if you're following Jesus. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, these are the things you die to that don't matter anymore because you found something that's worth so much more. That the reward of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, is what matters and what pulls your heart and defines you when you're following Jesus. Verse 16, he says it another way. He says, I want you to live out your good deeds in front of people so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, now all the good work that you do in your life, all the good religious spiritual things that you do that people see and they may think you're a good person, you don't do that so that you'll be a good person. And you don't do that so people will think you're a good person. You don't do that so people will praise you for being a good person. Not if you're following Jesus. Most of us do it for those reasons. But if you're following Jesus, you do it so that God will be praised. You do it for God's glory. Your life, even your own good works, aren't about you if you're following Jesus. They're about God, and you know, specifically your Father in heaven. And so again, this heavenly reality, spiritual reality, beyond this world, bigger than this world, that matters more than this world, that the glory of God matters more than your praise. The glory of God matters more than anything, that everything you do in your life, every good thing that Jesus does want to flow out of his followers isn't about you, it's about God. So again, he's just constantly, as we start to see it, he's reorienting your whole life away from you toward God, away from this world toward the kingdom of heaven, away from your own little kingdom to his kingdom. Verse 19, he does it this way. He says, hey, if anybody doesn't listen to all the law and the prophets, which would have been the Bible, everything that he's saying he's going to fulfill. He says, in the kingdom of heaven, they'll be called least. And so again, he said, here's what matters. What does the kingdom of heaven say about you? What's the verdict that the kingdom of heaven gives on your life? If the kingdom of heaven looks at you and says, you are the least, that's a terrible thing. And then he flips it and he says, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is basically like, hey, if you're my follower... I'm not concerned at all about what this world says about you. Let them insult you. Let them persecute you. Let them reject you. It's okay. They don't matter in that sense. They aren't the judge. They aren't the authority. They don't speak over you. Their verdict won't matter. But what the kingdom of heaven says about you, it's going to matter forever. It matters eternally. This is all that matters. What will God say about you? Will he look at you and say, yeah, I see all your religious work, but you're the least in my kingdom. Or we look at you and say, yes, I, I see how you followed Jesus. I see what it meant for you to be a disciple of Jesus, and you're great in my kingdom. This is what matters. And then Jesus pulls this one out, and we're going to come back to this in a minute. But he says, when the kingdom of heaven, or when God looks at you and makes a declaration about you, 
I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to try to stop right here and really understand what he's saying. Because I know like, 2,000 years removed, we say Pharisee, and it's kind of a dirty word in the church. Like we automatically, those are the bad guys, those are the enemies. They led Jesus getting crucified. But that's not the way they were viewed back then. Right? The Pharisees are the, the most religious people and the teachers of the law. The most religious people that they would have known. When they're listening to Jesus, they are the, whole, the Pharisees are the holiest, the most religious, the most righteous. They do all the right things. They basically got the whole Bible memorized. They're always praying, quoting the Bible, following all the rules. They're tithing. They're doing everything that they believe that God said that they're supposed to do in the Old Testament. They're the best of the best when it comes to religion. I mean, you, know, you think about... Think about church members that serve in leadership roles and lead community groups and are involved in five or six different ministries and give faithfully and are always here. Like if we still had those little offering envelopes where you check the boxes, they would have every single box checked on the front of that whole thing. Like these are those people. Like you look at them and you're like, yeah, they're holy. They're good. They do it all right. I don't know if I could ever be like them, but I know that when I come, I'm supposed to try to be like them. And that's the environment that we create a lot of times. That's who the Pharisees are. And Jesus says, the most righteous people you know, they're not even getting in. <laughs> Think about the best people you know. They're not good enough for Jesus' kingdom. And you have to hear him say that right there. Like He's got this huge crowd following him. He says, okay, you want to know what it's like to follow me? The best you have to offer isn't good enough. That's what it's like to follow me. Be the most religious person you can be. Be the most righteous person you can be. You won't even get in to my kingdom. It's one of the hardest things that he ever says when we stop and listen. Your righteousness has to surpass the most righteous people you know. Your righteousness has to go beyond every religious leader you know to even get in to his kingdom. And he goes on. He keeps orienting us this way. He gives a whole bunch of examples then. That whole next section is example after example of what he means by your righteousness has to surpass theirs. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. But then in verse 45, he does it again. He says, what he says is, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So again, complete opposite of this world, right? This world hates your enemies. <laughs> Fight against those who persecute you. He said, no, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's what it's like in my kingdom. Here's how different my kingdom is. Here's how upside down my kingdom looks to this world. But the deal is my kingdom's right side up and the whole world's upside down. But the reason he gives is that you may be children of your Father in heaven. It's because you're part of a different kingdom. You're part of a different family. Your heavenly Father defines your identity now. And he does things differently than this world. Chapter 6, he comes back to it again. Verses 9 and 10. In the prayer, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come. So again, the, the focus of his prayer. God, we want the kingdom of heaven to be lived out here on earth. As you live in us, as we follow Jesus, as we're your followers, as you fill us with your spirit, this kingdom of heaven that we're a part of and that matters spiritually forever, we want to be like little outposts of that kingdom here on earth. Let it be happening here in our lives, through us in the world. This is the focus of the Lord's prayer. Verse 20. When he says, store up treasures in heaven. Right? Don't invest your life, your resources, your time, your money in the things of this earth because that's not what matters to you anymore. And it's not what's most important. You're reorienting all your treasures, everything you have, invest it in the kingdom of heaven because that's what matters and that's where your heart should be if you're following Jesus. Verse 33 in the do not worry section. Like he summarizes the whole thing. Like here's why you shouldn't worry about what you eat and drink, about your clothes, what you wear, about your life. Because you're seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. And you know your father in heaven is going to take care of you. That kingdom has become the priority for you. So you don't worry about this life and this world. And then in chapter 7, verse 11. If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And so again, 
your source, your resources, your refuge, the one you turn to, it's your Father in heaven. You don't look to the world for worldly solutions and worldly provision. You don't look to yourself for your own abilities and your own provision. God, your Father, you're part of his family now, and he loves you like a perfect father. And if you know who he is, you turn to him and you trust him and you ask him. And then in verse 21, this is the conclusion of the sermon. And this is, I said that chapter 5 there was one of the hardest things Jesus ever says. I think this may be the scariest thing that Jesus ever says in the whole Bible. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's already said the most righteous people you know, Pharisees, teachers of the law, really religious people, they're not even getting in. And now he says, people who with their lips call me Lord, not all of them are getting in. There are going to be people who call me Lord and they don't really get in. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we do all these spectacular religious and spiritual things in your name? We prophesied in your name. We drove out demons in your name. We performed many miracles. And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I'm not your king. You're not citizens in my kingdom. You're not part of my kingdom. And so... Jesus is clearly putting an emphasis on his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and telling us that it's radically different from everything that we would think about as far as a kingdom on earth. And also even from the religious view that we would have of what it would mean to be religious and good and righteous, that that doesn't translate into his kingdom. There's something that has to change. There's a shift that has to take place. And I think back in that verse in chapter 5, when he says your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees or surpass that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Almost there, I think it's verse 20, maybe 21. 20. That clues us in to everything he's going to say for the rest of the sermon as he explains what he means. And so I want us this morning and the rest of our time, and I'm going to try to, I've got 10 of these. If we can't do them in our time, we'll pick them up next week and we'll already be adding a week. But, I want us to contrast what we're going to call religious righteousness, the righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, what we would typically think of. And you could think of this as, you know, following the rules. That's what the Pharisees did. And we're going to contrast that with Jesus' righteousness. When he's saying, hey, your righteousness has to surpass this religious righteousness, and it has to live up to my standard. And instead of following the rules, we're going to call it following Jesus. Both because right before this, he started with follow me, follow me, you know, to Peter and Andrew, James and John. The crowds are following him. And then he ends this whole thing with, hey, if, if you just say religious things, even if you do religious things, a lot of those people aren't getting into my kingdom. And then the phrase he uses is, I never knew you. They didn't have a relationship with me. They weren't following me. They weren't connected to me. And so this distinction between religious righteousness, following the rules, which is not enough in Jesus' kingdom, even though it looks like enough on earth, even though it's the thing that looks the best to people on earth and is most satisfied, versus really following Jesus, the type of righteousness he describes. If we can do them all, we're going to do them all, and if we can't, we'll just stop. Here we go. Number one, religious righteousness is only external behavior. And we see this over and over and over in these next examples he gives us, where he's like, okay, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. You've heard that it was said, do not break your oaths. Make sure you realize everything that he quotes right there comes from the Old Testament. Like That's the Bible. It's not bad things. It's not wrong things. These are things that God said to his people. And Jesus is like, you've heard about all these behaviors that you're not supposed to do. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't get divorced. Don't break your oaths. You know, like, that's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Straight out of the Old Testament. He's like, but I tell you, that's not enough. Now, he doesn't say, do all this stuff, right? He's not saying, yeah, you've heard that this was the bar. Don't worry about that. The bar is down here. He says, you've heard that this was the bar. I'm telling you, you cross that bar, that's not enough. 
If all you do is follow these rules externally, if all you do is behave in a way that everybody says they've done the right thing, that's not enough if that's all that it is. You've heard this, but I tell you, and think about every contrast he makes. When it's, you've heard, do not murder, external behavior, but I tell you, if you're even angry with your brother in your heart, you're guilty. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even lust in your heart, you're guilty. You've heard that it was said, only get a divorce if you have a good legal reason. That's what it says. Give her a certificate of divorce. Do this the way it's supposed to be done. I tell you, don't get divorced. You've heard that it was said, don't break your oath. I tell you, be so honest in your heart that you never need to take an oath. If you say yes, it means yes, and there's no need for an oath. If you say no, it means no, there's no need for an oath. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Extract justice for people. Follow the letter of the law and demand that justice always be done. I tell you, Love your enemies. Give to those who ask from you. If they demand something, give them twice as much as they ask. They want you to go with them, go twice as far as they ask. Give more than the law could ever require you to give. And so with every one of these, Jesus says, this external behavior is not enough by itself. I want internal change. I want your heart to be changed. Uh Uh-oh. Your character to be changed. I don't want you to just do this stuff externally because the law tells you to. I want your heart to be so changed that the law doesn't have to tell you. Right? If, you, if your heart is so changed that you don't ever get angry at your brother, you're not going to murder anybody. <laughs> right? It's not that you're going to suddenly break that law. It's that your heart doesn't even need that law because your heart goes so far beyond that law. If your heart's so changed that you never lust, you're not going to commit adultery. If your heart is so changed that when you say yes, it's always the truth, you don't need oaths. If your heart is so changed that when people ask for a mile, you give them two. When they ask for a cloak, you give them your whole wardrobe. You don't need eye for eye and tooth for tooth. You're never going to demand that you get your rights. If your heart's so changed that you love your enemies and you pray for the people who persecute you, you're not going to have any trouble loving your neighbor. And so Jesus is saying, my righteousness really following me means internal change that's so deep and so radical that the law can't even touch it. Number two, real religious righteousness following the rules, it avoids, and you're going to see how some of these overlap, but it avoids visible sins like the stuff you can see, and another way to say it, it avoids the negative. Don't murder, right? Don't commit adultery. Don't break your oaths. It's all this stuff that if you do this, people will see that you've done the wrong thing, and the law helps you avoid those things. And Jesus says that's not enough. We've got to go way beyond that if you want to look like me and follow me and be part of my kingdom. So instead of just avoiding visible sins, I want you to be aggressively gracious. And just one place to see it, this first example. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. There's the visible sin to avoid. Avoid this negative. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So he's getting after your heart now. He's like, if anger is in your heart, you are a murderer. If you believe Jesus. If Jesus is the king and Jesus is your teacher, you need to hear this right now. Because a lot of people, I promise you, you sit here and you nod your head. But if, if we're out there and somebody has murdered somebody and you haven't, you're going, I haven't done what they've done. I'm not guilty the way, I'm not as bad as them. You are. Jesus is saying you are. And it's as simple as do you believe him or not? If you harbor anger in your heart in Jesus' kingdom, you are guilty as a murderer. If you harbor lust in your heart in Jesus' kingdom, you are guilty as, a murderer, as, as an adulterer. If, if you speak little white lies when you're not under oath in Jesus' kingdom, you're as guilty as a perjurer. Right? If you love your family really well and the people who are around you and you don't care at all about anybody else in the world, in Jesus' kingdom, it's like you hate everybody. Like those are his standards. And so the, the contrast here, instead of the hate, the anger, the murder, 
Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Here's what it, it's not just that you don't murder. It's that any time a relationship is broken in your world, you pursue reconciliation. You will interrupt your worship to go be made right with this person. Aggressively gracious. You forgive the people who have sinned against you. That's what we get to in chapter 6. That you are forgiving the way that God forgives you. He says, if they persecute you, pray for them. If they're your enemies, love them. Aggressively gracious. You're not just avoiding the negative. You're pursuing the positive. And, and by the positive here, we mean love, forgiveness, reconciliation. This is what it looks like in his kingdom. Jesus is basically saying, hey, you can never do any of these bad things visibly, and you haven't taken one step into my kingdom yet. Like if all you do, if you hunker down at home and you're a hermit and you never do anything that looks wrong to anybody, you're not in my kingdom. Have you pursued grace, pursued love, pursued forgiveness, pursued reconciliation? Do you value relationships, value people? That's what it looks like to be part of Jesus' kingdom. Number three, in this religious righteousness, the law is the standard. He keeps quoting the Old Testament law. He's like, this is what the Pharisees and teachers of the law do. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not get divorced unless you give her a certificate of divorce. Keep your oaths, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. The law is the standard. In Jesus' kingdom, no, that should be a three, love is the standard. We've talked about that one, so I'm going to leave it at that. Number four, if that stuff hasn't already gotten you as much as it's gotten me, get ready for this next one. In religious righteousness, you want to be praised by people. In chapter 6, Everything he says that these hypocrites, these religious hypocrites that do all the right stuff on the outside, but what they're doing on the outside doesn't match what's going on on the inside. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. When you give, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do to be honored by others. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray out in public to be seen by others. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Everything that they do, all this great religious stuff that looks so impressive, they're doing it for themselves. They're doing it so that they will look good and so they will be praised for being good. They want to be praised by people. And Jesus says, that type of righteousness, if, and listen, listen, that can motivate you so much that you live an incredibly good life. You can be so hungry for the praise of people, for self-validation, for self-worth, for them to tell you how good and great you are and to feel good about yourself. It can fuel you to do everything that we would ever say we want you to do. Like it's scary to think that some of the best church members that we have anywhere in the world, best church members, are people who are motivated completely by praise of themselves. And it's why Jesus could say, we're going to get to the end. And some of these people are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all this great stuff in your name? Do you, have you heard what people said about me? How good they thought I was and how many things I did for the church and how they always asked me to do something else because I always gave it my best. He's like, I never knew you. You didn't do any of that for me. You weren't doing that for my kingdom. You were doing that for your kingdom, for your name. You want to be praised by people. The contrast over here, you want God to be praised 
by people. And this was back up here in chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others. And if, you, if you're being thoughtful there, you may pause and be like, doesn't that contradict what he just said about the hypocrites? He said, don't pray so they see you. Don't give so they see you. Don't fast so they see you. In other words, don't do these good things so that people see you. But now he says, let your light shine so they see you. What's the difference? That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In chapter 6, everything the hypocrites did was, you give so they'll see that you gave and they'll honor you. You pray so they'll hear your prayer and be impressed and honor you. You fast and you want to make sure they know how miserable you are because you've been fasting for so long so they will look at you and be impressed and honor you. All the motivation, the external, and this is why external behavior is not enough. Because the external behavior can be exactly the same and the heart can be polar opposite. When you give, do you give for your glory or do you give for God's glory? When you pray, do you pray for your praise or for God's praise? When you fast, do you fast so that God is glorified or so that you're glorified? The behaviors are exactly the same, but why? What's the goal? And that ties into number five, and so I'm going to go ahead and do it, and we're going to stop here for the morning. Hey, we made it halfway. In religious righteousness, self is the source. In Jesus' righteousness, in Jesus' kingdom, God is the source. And we get this from these same verses. The only way that people are going to look at your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven is if God is really the one producing those good deeds in you. He gets the credit because he's the one doing it. And also, probably the way people know that is because you are humbly confessing that to them. This isn't me. This doesn't come from me. This comes from him. He's done a gracious work where he's made me part of his family and he's accepted me into his kingdom and this is who he is and he has sent his spirit to live in me and he's producing this in me. If you see anything good in me, praise him because I'm a wretch apart from him. Verse Listen to my prayer with my big eight-syllable words. Think about how holy I am. Look how much I have given and how generous I am. Do you know how regularly I fast? Praise me. (laughs) Do you see the contrast? I'm the source of this stuff. I want you to praise me. God is the source of every good thing in me. Praise God. And so this is the start. Jesus is saying, hey, Normal, human, religious righteousness that has its source in humans. It may look good to you by your standards. It doesn't even get in the door of my kingdom. What I'm talking about to really follow me and know me and be in relationship with me and for me to change your heart and change your life from the inside out, this is what it starts to look like. And if you're like me, I know we're only halfway through. It gets harder from here, <laughs> the next five. Like, I can't tell you how much of my life I've lived in that left-hand column and how normal it is for me and how easily I default over there. And how much I need Jesus to keep pulling me into that right-hand column every single day, every moment of my life. And I'm thankful that he does. But if I just read those two columns, and I'm like, okay, left hand doesn't even get in. Right hand's what it looks like to be in the kingdom. It's like, I, I'm not getting in. I'm Lord, Lord. He's like, who are you? Like, if, if, if that's the last word, and this is a hard word from Jesus, if that's the last word, I'm in as much trouble as anybody I know. And maybe you're sitting there right now under Jesus' words and you're like, oh my word. I've told myself my whole life that I was following Jesus and everything I've done is the stuff he says is not following him. 
So what hope is there? If, if his kingdom is that type of kingdom and his standard is that high, what hope is there? Go back to where he started. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He starts at the very beginning and he says, Hey, when you don't measure up spiritually, when you are in spiritual poverty, and you don't have the resources that you need spiritually, and you don't have the credit to your account that you need spiritually, you're the kind of person I welcome into my kingdom. He knows what he's like. I'm about to tell you that the best righteousness that religious people on earth have to offer isn't good enough. And so the question is going to be, well, what is then? And he says, spiritual need, spiritual bankruptcy, spiritual emptiness. When you start to know that you don't have what you need, you get into my kingdom. Now, as long as you think that your righteousness is good enough, that you're doing really good things and people are praising you for how good you are, you can't even set foot in his kingdom. But when you start to know how poor you are spiritually, how far you are from being good enough, and you know it so much that you start to mourn, I'll welcome you into my kingdom and I'll comfort you. When it humbles you and you become meek because you know that you don't measure up, you know how desperate your need is, you know you'll never be good enough, I'm going to give the whole thing to you. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, when you are starving for righteousness because you're like, I don't have it. <laughs> like everything I have in me is empty religious calories and I'm hungry for the real meal. Jesus is like, I'll fill you up. I will give to you what you don't have. And so what's your hope? When you look and you're like, no, this left, this left list is me, and Jesus says it's not good enough. This right list is what he wants, and I'm not that. He's like, good. You're starting to listen to my sermon. <laughs> you're right. You could never get into my kingdom on your own. What you have to offer, your absolute best, won't be enough. And then he comes back to you and he's like, but I'm enough. Do you know me? Are you in relationship with me? Do you trust me? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Like, do you hear the brokenness there? He's like, here's who I'll bless in my kingdom. It's not the strong and the mighty and the righteous and the impressive. It's the broken down and the humbled and the empty and the needy. That's who I'll bless in my kingdom. And here's why. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, because the richest of all became poor so that he could make you rich when you're poor. Blessed are the, those who mourn, because the one who knew perfect joy and fellowship with the Father for all eternity, he mourned for us, and he chose to come and mourn with us so that we can have perfect joy with him. He says, blessed are the meek, because the one who's greatest of all, king of kings and lord of lords and God over all in heaven, he was so meek that he humbled himself and he became the lowest of all. So that the lowest of all can become great with him. Your hope, your hope when you look at these religious teachers and these religious people and Jesus says they're not good enough, your hope is that Jesus is the better religion. Your hope is that Jesus is the better teacher. Your hope is that Jesus is the better righteousness, and he gives it to you. Like This is where it ends, the whole thing. He teaches his whole sermon. And I love Matthew's final words here. It's where we're going to end today as we go into worship. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus was the better teacher. And one of the million ways that he was the better teacher, Jesus didn't just say it. Jesus lived it. He lived it for you and for me so that when he looks at you and you're like, Jesus, I know I don't measure up. He's like, yeah, but I do. 
And I will give my righteousness to you if you will stop trusting in your own. I will be enough for you if you will admit that you aren't enough on your own. Jesus lived this. He said, I'll become poor in spirit so the poor in spirit can become rich. I will mourn for you in your sin so that you can be comforted and receive my joy. I will humble myself and give up my glory so that I can welcome you into my glory. Jesus is everything he teaches. Jesus is the righteousness that he talks about. And Jesus offers that to you if you will follow him instead of this world. If you will trust him instead of yourself. If you will believe that he has everything and you have nothing apart from him. And if you will give up yourself and your kingdom and the things of this world and you will say, I want to be dead to that Jesus. I want you. You're my only hope. You are everything. And you will come to him and cling to him. He says, come on. You can be poor in spirit. You can be broken. You cannot measure up. That's actually okay in my kingdom when you come to me and confess it, when you come to me and trust me. And so we're going to pray right now. I'm going to thank God that this is true. I'm going to pray that he helps us see it and believe it. And then we're going to worship together because this is who he is. And if you want to come pray with somebody during this time, talk to somebody about what you're hearing, we'll do that. And hey, we'll pick up here next week. If I've left stuff hanging or, you know, like not, not wrapped it up well, ask any questions you want after, email me, whatever. We will pick up next week. Thank you for working through it with me this morning. Let's pray together. Father, please show us all the ways that we trust ourselves or this world or our efforts instead of trusting Jesus and his kingdom and his grace and his gospel. And please keep transforming us by the truth of your word. Please keep making us into people who look like Jesus as we follow Jesus. And we can't do that, Father. We cannot apart from your work and your help. And so we ask for it. Build our lives and build this church on Jesus' words, Jesus' truth, and Jesus' grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.